wasn't happy, even though I'd kicked the goal of, of making money, you know, success without fulfillment is the ultimate in failure. And we spend so much time in life trying to climb up a ladder, and very rarely do we take the time to work out whether that ladder's actually leaning against the right wall. Dropped everything, everyone said, you're mad, dream job, making a pile of money, why do you want to do this? And without question, it was one of the best decisions I made in my life. There's more money in the world now, even before I even finish this sentence, than there was at the start of it, because the money press in the US is going ballistic as we speak. So there's plenty of it out there. It's a question of how you attract it. And all of us in life are where we're at right now based on the decisions cumulatively that we've made up until this point. And we get a choice at this point whether we've had enough of that or whether we want something else. There's a price of admission when you look in the mirror and you go, I'm not happy and, and I'm prepared to do something about it. That's where committing to that price of admission to say, okay, what's it going to take? And you mean it. Because it's nice to say, I want this. We all want stuff. But how committed are you to actually have? Just lip service? Is it the thing to say? Did you respond to someone's post on TikTok? Or are you actually going to just get on, roll the sleeves up, and actually make it happen and do whatever it takes? All right, guys, so in this episode, I sat down with Andrew Baxter, who's one of Australia's leading experts on money and wealth creation. Now, I learned so much chatting to Andrew about investing, about building wealth in your own personal portfolio. So whether you have $500 to invest or $500,000 to invest, this episode is for you. Also, just before we get started on the podcast, I really want to ask a couple quick favors from you guys, if I can. If you're listening to this podcast on an audio platform, if you could just leave a five-star review, or if you're on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, leave a like on the video. Both of those things really helps uh, the channel grow. The bigger we grow, the better the guests, the more value we can provide. So that's it. Let's get into it. All right, so we've got a we've got a really exciting guest on today. Now, I, admittedly, I've said this before on the podcast. I've been living in the e-com world for five, six years now, spending all my time in that. And something that I've been aware, one of my shortcomings in 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 an area of life and business and wealth creation that I've really not put enough focus on. I'm I'm starting to, and it's part of why I'm excited to have you on this podcast. Is 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 investing the stock market, all the different options in terms of investing. Now, our guest today, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you might think this guy looks a little bit familiar. I thought the same thing many, many years ago when I was in my event uh, binging phase. I've seen you, I think, once or twice at a success event. And I remember even back then, that was it would have been when I first got into e I'm like, oh, maybe I should get into investing. So I, I, I remember I did resonate with your message. But so I guess today is Andrew Baxter. He's one of Australia's leading experts on money and wealth creation. He's the founder of the Australian Invest of Australian Investment Education and the host of the podcast Money and Investing with Andrew Baxter. Obviously, I do my research. I learn a lot just from the couple of hours I was looking into you. So I'm excited to ask you a lot of questions about that world. Now, the podcast, kind of what it's centered around is, is revealing the strategies that the ultra successful investors, yourself included, use to grow uh, their own wealth. And you, the goal of it is to show Aussies how they can start regardless of their position. Now, that's something I'm really interested in. We were chatting just before we started, very startup culture kind of phase of people that listen to this that are in business. Maybe it's the first or second business to trying to change their lives. Some of them a little bit further down the line. Some are just getting started. So giving this arm of investment another way to make money and build wealth is really, really important. So just another thing I thought was really cool. This man sitting across from me shared the stage uh, with Robert Kiyosaki, Tony Roberts, Sir Richard Branson, Tony Blair, and he's worked with the likes of the Wolf of Wall Street uh, himself as well. So we'll get into it. I'm going to pick your brain about so many things. But again, when it comes to money, when it comes to anyone giving advice on money, I'm sure you'll know, uh, Andrew, no one really cares what you say unless you've done it yourself. Exactly right, Dylan. So give us a little bit before we go into exploring some of these investment strategies and tactics and the mindset around it. Give us a little bit of uh, a background on yourself, where you came from, how you got to where you are today, and obviously how you made your money. 
Well, th- firstly, thanks for having me on the show. And I think you know, it's such an important message to get out to people because getting time working for you is crucial. The younger yep. people are, the way to get started, the better. So look, my journey started in the UK. Uh, I grew up in the UK. I grew up in a pretty poor working class family. Uh, my dad worked in a car factory. My mum was a cleaner, so definitely not a glamorous and certainly not a wealthy wealthy background. Very happy childhood. I think that's also something that's really important to acknowledge. You know, money doesn't always equal happiness. And my parents really drilled me uh, and... Now I'm a parent myself, I'm actually finding I'm saying the same thing to my kids, you know, work hard at school so you can get a good job, good education is priceless, know what you can do with your life. And uh, and they certainly drove me pretty hard in that way. Um, I got into university and I guess that was really where things started to change for me because you know, I grew up in a working class town, pretty small town, and no one really expects people there to do a lot of good things. Uh, you know, you just have your lot in life and on it goes. And so getting into university really opened... Uh, a big door for me in terms of seeing that, wow, there are people from wealthy families that I'd never <laughs> met or mixed with before and there's another level out there. Worked hard there, graduated and uh, started my career in the City of London. Um, I worked for a couple of investment banks there and gravitated towards trading. I uh, love markets. Uh, my first investment in the stock market was a shocker. <laughs> I was, I'd done um, had invest in shares at school and as you've rightly said, you know, theory is one thing but results are something else. So I thought, right, let's give this a crack. And I had a part-time job, you know, slave labor, as you do when you're a kid, and uh, had some money saved up, gave that one a go, and lost all my dough. And uh, I think that was probably one of the most important lessons I could have had because I think at the time I would have lost maybe 500 pounds, which, you know, my part-time job was paying me a pound an hour, so a lot of work went into saving that. And it was the best 500 pounds I could possibly have invested. It just didn't feel like that at the time. It felt pretty rough. So I learned a bit about risk management. So by the time I started working... um, in, in the trading space, in investment banking, you know, risk management was, was my forte uh, rather than just opportunity. And I did pretty well there. Loved it. That was, uh, again, an eye-opener because you go from being in a railway town where people are struggling to pay a mortgage to working with people that are pulling down literally tens of millions a year. Isn't that an interesting experience? I had a similar experience in the fact that I grew up in the suburbs of southwest Sydney, so I didn't ha- wasn't exposed to people in business my friend's parents weren't big entrepreneurs that had an investment portfolio. Maybe you'd be lucky if someone's parents had like an investment property or just something yep. to supplement it. But it's when you change your environment and you get out and you start meeting yep. people doing these things that your world changes now. Was it always finance and numbers for you? I remember I was an ambitious kid. It's like, what are you going to be? Doctor, lawyer, engineer, investment banker. Like well, all three of those four things involve math. So I'm going to try to be a lawyer. That didn't work out. Um, but for you, was it was it always math? Were you always a numbers man from, from early on in life? No, I, I, my goal, my, my dream job when I was a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But as you've discovered, I'm a bit too tall for that. <laughs> Very tall, man. And uh, I spend a lot of time on a plane now, not flying it, sitting at the front having a glass of wine. But the um, That's better anyway. I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> um, and so it was a bit of a change when I realised I wasn't going to make the, the, the grade as a pilot, a fighter pilot. So I started to work a little bit harder on economics, which is something I've always been interested in, and, and I guess current affairs and those two things are really quite useful. And, and it's interesting, everyone associates the notion that you know successful trading and investing is about the numbers. And in actual fact, it's not. Um, so for people that perhaps are listening to this that aren't numbers people, it's about pattern recognition. If you can see a picture or a pattern, then the numbers will back it up. But if you just look at the numbers and miss the picture or pattern, you're looking the wrong way, you'll see anything there. So it's really interesting that there's a sort of thought shift there, if you will. But yeah, numbers, my, my maths is pretty good. So, yeah, maths has always been something. So you moved moved to Australia. Was it late 90s? You yeah. made the, the move from, from the UK over here. What mm. motivated that move? Look, 
99 was when I moved. and Right before the Olympics? Uh, yeah, Exciting I was here time. for the Sydney Australia. Olympics and, uh, and I got here to, to – uh, well, actually, I hadn't been here that long. I went down and watched a game of rugby, watched the All Blacks lose to Australia there just before the Olympics <laughs> yeah, in the Bledsloe Cup. doesn't happen often now. Um, but, no, I, I, I think at the time I was on a, on, a, on a particular trajectory. I was making great money. I ticked the goal that I had when I was a kid. I had no money when I was a kid, so I really chased it hard. And that was my goal, to make as much as I could. And I did pretty well at that. And I, I think I came to the realisation that there were a few things wrong with my life. Number one, what I was doing for a living was extraordinarily stressful. If you go down on a trading floor, it is bonkers, you know. It is it is just crazy in terms of the adrenaline, which you've got to try and manage out because you're trying to be very objective. The competition um, are the two big things. And, and at that era, the 90s, it was a predominantly male environment. Uh, it was very stressful. I was drinking about 23 cups of coffee a day, so you can imagine how wound up you'd be. Um, a lot of my colleagues, system jacked oh, up. totally, your body's so acidic. Um, some of my colleagues probably had, you know, less desirable ways of managing the stress than that, which involved, the, you know, the bathroom and a mirror. And <laughs> it's a very, very toxic place. A lot of young guys earning a lot of money yeah. and, and a really alpha type environment. And I guess I wasn't happy, even though I kicked the goal of, of making money. And I, and I believe it, and I believe this to this day that, you know, success without fulfillment is the ultimate in failure. And we spend so much time in life trying to climb up a ladder and very rarely do we take the time to work out whether that ladder is actually leaning against the right wall. Now, for a moment, I'm not going to criticise what I did because it provided me with a platform and a skill set for where my life then went on. But I also think whether by luck or chance, I, I stepped off that bus at the right time for me in my life. And I was dating an Aussie girl and she said, look, would you be interested in moving to Australia? And I said, and I've been here for a holiday. I said, hell yeah. And uh, dropped everything. Everyone said, you're mad, dream job, making a pile of money. Why do you want to do this? And without question, it was one of the best decisions I made in my life. One of, one of the things I find really interesting about what you just mentioned, I've gone through it as well. Like a lot of people that don't have a lot of money growing up, obviously your goal is to make a lot of money so you can have the opportunities and experience things you didn't get to experience as, as, as a child. That makes sense. But once you've made the money, as you said, you start realizing, hey, I've made a bit of money. I've ticked that box, which was your whole initial goal, but I'm not really loving what I'm doing. I'm Obviously, I'm abusing my health. I'm not fulfilled. When you make that change, what then becomes the motivation? Because you still need a big motivation driver mm. to work as hard as you do to create the success and build this wealth. What was the motivation change in your head that made you still hungry enough and driven enough to put all the work in to continue to build and grow? Well, I think I had a bit of time out when I initially got here. Uh, and I remember reading on the plane uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which nothing immediately happened off the back of that, but it started to get me thinking about the world of investing beyond beyond trading screens and and a trading floor and just the stock market to look at other avenues and structuring, having your own business, all of those sorts of things. And I think it planted a seed. So I had a bit of time off. I was, I was, I was, I was trading from home. I was living in Brisbane, which, you know, at the time was a great city, the traffic, nothing like the problems you have these days <laughs> there. Um, and this will date the story some, but you used to have to pull the cord out of the back of the phone that was on the wall in the kitchen and whack it in the computer to get on the line, right? So, you know, you've almost got a wooden keyboard on the computer. That's how far ago we're talking. And it was the start of the, the, the dot-com uh, boom, and so an online trading. So I was trading from home, making some great money, but on my terms without being as stressed as being in, in the city. And I was out playing golf one day. Uh, it's maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, and, and there was no one out there because obviously most people are at work on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and 
there's an older guy and he yells across to me and says, look, you're on your own. I said, yeah. He said, well, hop in the buggy. We'll play together. So off we go, two, three holes into the – and I'm a terrible golfer. I'm really <laughs> clear. I think the last time I hit two good balls was when I stood on a rake, but that's a, that's another story. And that's, a, that's my dad joke done for the day. I got that one in. I'll clip that one up, yeah, Joe. <laughs> edit that one out for sure. But uh, and anyway, we got chatting away and, and the conversation sort of went down the pathway of oh, how come you're not at work today? And I asked him the same question. I said, well, why aren't you? He said, well, I'm retired. I said, and he said, so, so what about you? And I said, so am I. And he practically crashed the golf buggy because I think I was 29 at the time. <laughs> and, and most people, and I think it's another thing in life, if you hear something often enough, it starts to become a truism, even if it's not. And if you talk to people about retirement, they always think when I get older and retire, and in actual fact, retirement's got nothing to do with age, it's got everything to do with income. Because if you can buy your time back to, to do what you want to do when you want to do it with whom you want to do it, you're retired. You're not working for the man, you're doing your thing, you're working for yourself. And uh, he was obviously surprised that I was able to do that at my age and asked me how I said I was a trader. And then it opened up a conversation that he'd had a go at investing in the market and wasn't doing too well. And and I remember this conversation this day and he said, would you help me? And I think particularly from a male perspective, asking someone for help is a massive sign of vulnerability and it takes enormous courage to do that. And yet most of us have got an ego the size of text. I'm never asking for help. And mentoring is such an important thing. If you want to be successful in anything and you've spent time around great people and it's enabled your business to grow as I have, and then you can take those lessons and help other people do the same. So I started working with him. He used to come to my house. We'd trade together and got him up and running and he started to get you know, reasonably consistent and then started to make money. And again, I think there's an enormously important message there that when people start off on the journey into the world of investing, and, and this is, I guess, fueled by the sort of short-term world we live in, which is about immediate gratification, they just want the results now. And I think one of the most important steps as a successful investor, not an investor, but a successful, profitable, wealthy investor, is to build consistency and process first. And then once you've got that, you can scale and that's when the money comes. But everyone wants to jump ahead and have the money. And so being able to rein it back and, as I say, I got him really consistent. I get a call from his accountant at the end of the tax year going, what the heck have you done with this guy? He's making, well, we're trading, we're making money. And the accountant blew me away. He said, no one makes money trading. I said, well, they do. And you can see this firsthand. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and he said, well, come by the office. I want to know what you're doing with him. And he was a really entrepreneurial accountant, to be fair. And he said, look, I'm a property guy. And, and, and look, so am I. I love property. And he said, if you can explain what you're doing with him and I'm able to do the same thing and get that sort of consistency, I'm going to open the door up and you can start teaching all my clients this because they should be doing it. And that's mm-hmm. effectively purely by accident, out playing golf on a Tuesday or Wednesday at Indrapilly in Brisbane that this whole crazy two decades of my life really started. So was that the seed for Australian investment education? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. We, we, we started to – and I, what I realised at that point in time is – I was a really crap teacher. <laughs> um, you know, I knew my stuff as far as trading was concerned, but that ability to communicate it to people didn't exist. And, and, and it took a lot of work to realise that this is an industry that if you work in it, it's full of jargon and full of technical terms. And one of the biggest roadblocks for a lot of people, irrespective of age, is when you talk to people in this space, they're almost condescending in that they speak to you in a way that you can't understand. And if you feel that you need to question it, you, you feel silly. And that's, that's just such a roadblock to people's success journey. It's a massive turnoff. And so I put a lot of work into diluting down what I do in a way that literally anyone could follow. And I guess the, the, the analogy I'd use, if you think about, say, Marley Spoon or Hello Fresh, I don't know about you, I'm not a great cook. My wife is a wonderful cook. My father-in-law is an unbelievable cook, but I'm not. It's, uh, it's not my forte. 
But if we get Marley Spoon or HelloFresh, all the ingredients are there. It's in a really simple way. You can follow the steps. There's a photo to inspire you. And when you flip the card over, that's what you've got on the plate. And I guess what we've been able to build is a, a similar thing for trading, whereby here are a set of really simple, plain English, non-jargon steps that when you follow them, you get an outcome that's not what you don't want. It's actually what you do want. Hey guys, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you would have heard me talking about my e-commerce mentoring program, Viral Brand Builder. And if you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen that in November, I ran a case study with a small group of people who wanted to change their life with e-commerce. Now, when I put that post up, I had loads and loads of people reply, but unfortunately I couldn't take everyone on. So I'm going to do one last case study for the year. This is going to be the last intake like this until we launch the updated Viral Brand Builder program early in the new year. With that being said, I'm looking for five people that wanna go full-time with Ecom and quit their job in the next 12 months. If that's you, go to the description in this podcast and click the link that says, apply for mentoring with Dylan and you'll be able to book a call with me from there. Anyway, let's get back to it. And it's, it's, it's very similar with Ecom as well. You mentioned something like people want the instant gratification, mm. they want the results, they want the money straight away. When realistically, you need to build the foundation for anything to be successful long-term. That's not to say, someone can't start trading in the first week or two, hit something big or find a good product and launch and make, make a little bit of money. But if you think that's going to happen time after time after time without a foundation, you're wrong. Now, something I've heard a lot, a lot of times with, with money experts, financial experts, again, I'm not someone that spent a lot of time trading, but is trading mindset and developing your investing mindset. What does that, what does that mean? Is that part of building the foundation and part of the steps to building a system that can scale? A hundred percent. And I think it's true of, Business is true of you know anything that you do in the commercial endeavor space uh, is a, is a mindset psychology game in the first instance because let's face it we're both entrepreneurs that have been by most benchmarks pretty successful at what we do and are continuing to be so and it's not by accident it's because there's a foundation behind it and yet most businesses fail why is that uh, and, and a combination of factors you could just pick a really bad business idea of course but then that will probably come back to the fact that you didn't do a business plan and you didn't do your research and your SWOT analysis and all the things that they teach you that are really important to do. And then you become emotionally invested in your decision making too, whereby that emotion and ego overshadows the reality of the decision you can make. Well, trading is exactly the same. And I think that absence of taking the time to build a plan and then having the, the mental hardness to commit to that plan is the crucial step. So you've got to be, build that money mindset that it's, it's a process it's independent of any kind of emotion. And the more you can embrace both of those concepts, the more successful you'll be. The day you think you know more about something and your ego starts to creep in, or I'll give it another day, you know you should be out, but that, that fear factor of closing out of a trade because you might make more and you're feeling greedy, that's where the disaster happens. That's why I didn't make much money in uh, NFTs and crypto because the FOMO factor, right? The fear 100%. of price sell now. But yep. if, if even from my, my little bit of time investing in the crypto stuff, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on, uh, it's the psychology that fucked me up. Yep. It's the mindset that fucked me up. You it know, gets everybody. It gets everyone, right? Mm. Everyone buys at the high and that's, mm. you know, just, there's, it's very much a, a psychological game as well. And that's what I think I've been ignorant to a little bit. And a lot of people, when they go into investing, think it's all, like I said, it's all mm -hmm. about numbers and graphs and, ch and charts. And, but it's really about pattern recognition, human behavior, uh, and controlling your own emotions. With controlling your emotions and your mindset, particularly when you're on like this, like your stock trading floor, it's commotion, there's people yelling, it's like shit going on all, all around you. How do you, and obviously you've been off the floor for a while now, but 
How over the years of investing and, and spending so much time in this space, have you been able to develop your mind in a way that you can stay calm and make logical situations when there's actually a lot on the line, a lot mm. of cash on the line? There's, there's, again, you want to mitigate risk, but there's always going to be risk with what you do. That's, that's such a good question. And I think, you know, the evolution of, of, of trading from a trading floor to screen-based, there are fours and against. It's very cheap and easy to trade. Click of a button, you can trade any market globally. Back in the day, it was much harder than that. At the same time, when you're on a, an environment where there are a lot of people, you, you've got the ability to maybe read the room a little bit more mm-hmm. and, and get an idea from not just what your opinion is, but looking around at people that you know are pretty handy at what they do because you know who the, who the, who the, who the successful people are in that environment. Uh, and, and you can kind of gauge that a little bit. That can also be quite misleading. They're usually pretty good poker players, uh, mm-hmm. those sort of guys. You True. don't read them. And so how, how, do you, how do you get through? How do you get past that? And I guess that discipline is crucial. FOMO, that fear of missing out, is, is a total killer. And you've got to learn to believe in yourself and shut the noise out and adhere to that process. And probably one of the easiest ways of doing that at least talking about it as we are right now versus actually doing it in reality is to stop thinking about money in dollars and as as money is. And one of the things that I've done in my trainings over the years when I've got clients that are really struggling with um, that ability to disconnect themselves and and be too emotionally connected to their decision-making is to say, finish this sentence for me, money is, and then see what they say. Mm. You know, it's going to be freedom, it's going to be choice, it's going to be lifestyle, it's going to be something. And nearly all of those words are emotional. Money is just money. It's just a scorecard. It's just a metric as to how well you're playing that game. And that is it. And it can come and it can go just as quickly. And I think the sooner you're able to divorce yourself of that emotional connection to it, all of a sudden, whether you're running a a 500-pound portfolio, which was my initial trade, or, or tens of millions now, the reality is that it's exactly the same thing. It's just the decimal places and the commas have moved, that's all. And and the hurt that can come from a loss, you have to try and tiptoe around and avoid it being described as hurt and, and instead recognise it as being a learning exercise and an opportunity to dive a bit deeper to see what you can learn from that experience. It's an investment in your education. Just don't pay too much for it. Yeah, I think, again, a lot of people would struggle with that moving the decimal point and still remaining um, the same level of calm and, and, and the same level of control. A lot of it comes down to, like... The money stories that we grew up being taught, so a lot of them subconsciously yep. now. With the work you do, and I want to get into it in a second, how people can start with investing and, and all of that. But with the work you do, I, be, I would imagine a lot of the limiting beliefs and why people may, may struggle in terms of the mindset psychology piece of this to move forward is because of these unconscious money stories that they've learned and picked up from their parents and family and the people around them. For, for those who don't listening, what would you for those that don't already understand what I mean by money stories, how would you describe what a money story is and what we're told? And then part B to that question is in terms of being a trader and investor, how can you start to overcome that and change that so you can make better decisions and better trades? Look, money stories when you when you talk to the average average person, whatever the average person is, most people have got more baggage than a Samsonite factory. They're dragging this 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 shitty story that's dictated their life to that point in time. And all of us in life are where we're at right now based on the decisions cumulatively that we've made up until this point. And we get a choice at this point whether we've had enough of that or whether we want something else to happen. And again, that in itself is a really confronting conversation to have with someone. And, you know, you hear the the, the lessons imparted uh, from your parents, for example, which are always good intention. They may not be. So my dad, for example, always said, you know, you never want to have debt. If you owe someone money, they own you. And I've been debt averse. I've had no debt for I suppose it's a luxury, but I haven't had any debt for probably 30 years. And that's a really nice environment to be in in terms of there's no stress. 
but it's probably cost me you know, tens of millions of dollars in opportunity too because I could have geared up, I've done development, I could have done a heap of other things in that space. But that that mindset of be careful if you owe someone money, they own you, isn't something even I've been able to let go of even though I'm in, in, in the money space. So these are hugely deep-rooted things that we carry around with us. And a lot of people do discount that. They think, like, well, that's nothing. That's just what I got told when I was a kid. But it's not. They're, they're the th- lessons and the values that we, we carry forward. So we've got to be really minded of that, especially your kids. Also, as I say, when your parents push these things onto you, they're always good intentioned. Yeah, money doesn't grow on trees. We're not the Rockefellers. In other words, turn the light off in your room when you're done. I still rag my kids on that. Shani, I go, like my son Jack, he's seven. I said, Jack? And he said, yeah, I know. I've left the light on. And they're going to turn it <laughs> off, right? So he knows. But I'm ingraining that into him, not because I'm worried about the electricity bill particularly, but at the same time it is a waste. And it's important for him even at his age to understand that, you know, you can gratuitously consume things that you don't have to. And, you know, there are a lot of different things in there. So, yeah, there are some subliminal messages. So how do you, how do you, how do you get past them? You know, money doesn't grow on trees. And, you know, it's hard to come by. There's more money in the world now, even before I even finish this sentence than there was at the start of it, because the money press in the U.S. is going ballistic as we speak. So there's plenty of it out there. It's a question of how you attract it into your life. So, you know, it's about checking those stories, understanding them, respecting them, and keeping the good ones because they're not all bad. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those values that we've got are fantastic to carry you through life. So sift out the ones that maybe are what you might call, you know, if you're in the personal development space, you know, the limiting beliefs that are holding you back and go, that's just bullshit. It's time to cut that out and this is how we're going to see it. A classic one I have is that's one of None of our family are any good with money. We never have been. I said, you know something? You're absolutely right. And you're going to continue that intergenerational misery if you don't change that attitude, which is a really confronting conversation to have with someone. You've got to have some reasonable rapport and bedside manager. Otherwise, they're going to lean over the table and slap <laughs> But at the same time, the realisation that they have that they're continuing on with the, the BS of what they've believed in. So you, why, why can't you have this? What's stopping you? Oh, we've just never been good with money. Well, is it time to stop? Have you had a guts full of Have another five years of this if you want and then come back and see me. Now that's the time. And then when people commit to that and they're open, and there's the word, you have to be open. And you see this all the time. People will listen to your advice and you and you just watch it just going out the back door of the conversation. They're not open to it. They're just paying lip service. But if you've got someone that's open and they realise that I do want to change or I want my circumstance to change or I want to improve where I'm at or I want to grow as a person or I want to be proud of the legacy I leave with my kids or whatever it might be, once you've moved into that phase, then you can start to work with someone. But until they've shifted into, I need to commit to this decision, it becomes really, really hard. What I've just realised, like hearing, hearing you saying that, it's I, I have these conversations with people from all different walks of life, but so many times, and, and even just hearing you explain that, it's like it's just that initial moment of discomfort and being open or vulnerable or saying I need help or learning that new thing that you've been putting off, just getting through that initial moment yeah. of uncomfortability mm. is can open the door to a completely new life. It's just that initial moment saying enough is enough. And sometimes it's about looking yourself in the mirror and being like, you know, a fucking true growth comes when you're sick of your own shit. Yep. Right. But at the end of the day, you're the only person that gets to decide when you make that change. Do you want to continue doing what's easy and living the life that's comfortable, but you know, deep down you're not happy. Mm. Or do you want to have that honest conversation with yourself and realize I need to change and I can change these stories and I can change the, the future for myself and my family and all the generations of my family that follows. Now, in terms of getting started in investing, now you work with tens of thousands of Australians around the world. Now, some of the people listening to this podcast will have millions in the bank. Some will have hundreds just getting started and want to build that. Now, you've got a new book coming out soon, The Wealth Playbook, and it's all about helping millennials navigate this really difficult financial kind of bubble we've created where unless you're earning $200,000 a year or you're in a couple and you're both earning significantly over $100,000 a year, 
can't really buy in Sydney, particularly any of the suburbs that you really want to be mm. in. Now, what's your thoughts on how millennials can start to approach this investment cycle, this this getting into the property space because it is really difficult. What's your thoughts on that as a whole in terms of millennials getting their foot in the door? Because it isn't easy. It's never been easy. And I know so many people are sick of, oh, in my day back then, and all of the stories, again, money stories that you hear kind of thrown out there. There's a price of admission. Yeah, and as you, as, I couldn't have put it any better. As you say, when you look in the mirror and you go, I'm not happy and and I'm prepared to do something about it, that's where you're committing to that price of admission to say, okay, what's it going to take? And you mean it. Because it's nice to say, I want this. We all want stuff. But how committed are you to actually having that? Is it just lip service? Is it the thing to say? Did you respond to someone's post on TikTok? Or are you actually going to just get on and roll the sleeves up and actually make it happen and do whatever it takes? Now, whatever it takes isn't that hard and it hasn't changed. It's, it's, it's been what it is. It's a process. But I actually prepared for that price of admission. And that, that's a really confronting conversation. So to, to, to people in that space, um, you know, Getting started involves a lot of world-class basics like everything in life, you know, and it's it's always interesting when you look at success. People always look at the adornments of success. Someone's made CEO or what car they're driving or the house they're living in or whatever it may be in that superficial world that we can look at. What they don't see is the underarching habits and identity that that person has set to get them to that place, getting up early, being at meetings on time, picking your crap up off the floor. You know, and I, I still find myself doing that. I, I, I had a situation the other day where I entered a hole punch and, and, it, and it, it was all over the floor in my office. And my PA came in, what are you doing? And I'm on the floor picking picking the stuff up and putting it back in the bin. He said, what are you doing? Like the cleaners? I said, my mum was a cleaner. Why should she pick it up? It's my mess. You know, and it's that standard that you set yourself that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more. I'm going to try and change the way I am as a person in terms of my habits. And most people, when they set goals, I want to go have a property, it's an achievement goal. What they don't focus their time on is, okay, what are the habits that I need to develop to get to that? And then past the habit, what's the ingrown identity that I need to establish in myself that that habit runs on autopilot? So the achievement goal of having a property, for example, is the direction. If you think about a car, it's the steering wheel. The habit is the accelerator and brake, but the identity is the actual journey that you need to go on. And James Clear deals with that perfectly in Atomic Habits, one of the best books, and I highly recommend that to you anybody because it will get you moving forward so those world-class basics those habits things like budgeting and saving which seems futile when you think well i've got to save 150 grand to to get the property i want but if you never start you never get there and you might think well if i'm saving 100 bucks a week how am i going to get to this 150 grand you've got to show the discipline that you can save in the first instance and it's very hard particularly for younger people now because of the social media pressures buy now pay later and all the distractions and noise that are there so it is harder in that respect once you've established a pattern of behavior that habit that we talk about is not the achievement yet it's the habit of getting into that regular savings goal is to then get yourself in a position where you can start to manage debt to an extent you haven't got credit card debt no buy now pay later get rid of all that sort of junk because it's costing a fortune yeah, typically, you buy something on buy now, pay later, you don't even want it by the time you finish paying for it. So it's that instant gratification. Flush that. Play the long game. And then once you start to get those savings, you have to invest. Now, you may not be able to afford to get into the property market immediately, but if you've done some fancy footwork in terms of learning the skills needed, for example, in my gig, the stock market, where you could just buy an index tracking fund, an ETF, an exchange-traded fund. And if you'd have invested in the NASDAQ, 
from the start of this year you'd have made 41% month uh, year to date, which is 41%. a triple. So there's your house deposit growing for you. It's never going to do that earning interest at the bank. And in any case, even if you're earning interest at the bank, it's less than what inflation is, you're still getting left further behind. So those simple steps of committing, paying the price of admission to getting a budget, starting to save, and then as you get into that regular savings habit, then starting to grow your knowledge base out and, and, and dip a toe into the world of investing. And it may not be the stock market. It could be crypto. It could be fractional property ownership, which you can do now. Um, you know, the companies out there do that. It could be your real estate investment trust if property is your thing. It could be funneling that money back into your business to spin out more cash flow so you can get things moving forward. But they're the, they're the principal steps, and, and they haven't changed. You know, I'll go back to you know, my time in the UK. I remember my first property purchase in London, which was incredibly expensive. Um, and London is still an expensive place. And these are the steps I had to go through in order to afford something in a really less than desirable area that, that needed an enormous amount of work done, but I got my start. Mm. And once you've got the start, you can go from there. The problem is too many people don't want to uh, scale back their lifestyle. No. They've acquired a lifestyle and they this is my standard of living yes. and it's an ego hit for themselves it's an ego hit to all their friends and family mm -hmm. that see them they don't want to take that step back but if you stay in that path you're always going to be on this you know rat this rat wheel where you just yeah. whatever what are these things they're just consistently running around and you're 100%. working as hard as you can you're going to have to work harder and harder because the inflation the price of living rent everything is going up you're going to burn yourself out and you're never going to get anywhere it's making that circuit breaker change to do it and like you said and the thing is, just from my experience as well, you, you have to make those changes, be disciplined with your money. If you start investing them in the right way, like like you were saying, you might have some, put it into an index fund and, and make good money there. Your, your, your savings is going to start to compound. Things will grow faster. You might start a business. It doesn't mean how you start today in that lifestyle from day one. Like as things grow and, and you start making more money, things can change. It doesn't have to be forever, mm -hmm. but it has to start somewhere. You, you've got to pay the price of admission, the sacrifice to start. And once you've started, the next... The next step is easy because you've got momentum and, and you've built that inner discipline uh, that you get stuff done. I mean, you th we were talking a little earlier about health and you think about ice bathing, for example, and you know you're going to have 45 seconds of extreme pain. For Don't let me put you off taking an ice bath. It's an incredible experience. And then once you've pushed through that initial pain, you start to get the tingle and you feel great and you feel great for the next five or six hours. It's worth the price of admission, but psychologically that prospect of, hopping into something that's two or three degrees doesn't seem that appealing because the immediacy of that pain appears far greater than the pleasure down the line. And I think it's a question of of kind of reframing that and knowing what you want from life. And sadly, so many of us go through life where we don't think far enough ahead to what do we actually want. And if you don't know what you want, any road will take you there. But if you've got a very, very clear idea that this is this is this is what I want. This is what I this is how I see things and this is important to me for the following reasons and get some real emotion behind that and then break it, chunk it down, break it backward and say, Well, what do I need to do today, right now, in this moment? What action step, not thought, but what action step do I need to take that's gonna move me closer to that? And then you've got momentum, baby, it doesn't stop. But it's so bloody hard to get started with that first one, hey. Well, let me ask you this question. When is the best time for someone to start investing? Mm. And what is the minimum amount of money you think you need to get started? Best time was yesterday. Um, no question about that. And that's going to be the same answer. I thought that would be um, the I wanted to because, hear you Because, you know, I think the earlier you get started, time starts to work for you. Mm. Uh, and again, just circling back to one of the things you mentioned before about your, your, your standard of living changes, one of, the, one of the big sort of toxicities or cancers for growth with money is lifestyle inflation. And, and I went through this the other day with, with someone in my team. And you just take a simple example of socks. Now, if you think about the brand of socks you might have had when you 
school and back in my day, nylon socks for school because they lasted longer, pretty good blisters from them too. And then you might move into a cotton. Then you found a, 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 a you know, it might be, you know, you know, high street shop cotton on that sells cheap cotton socks. And then you move from there to Country Road. And then you move from there to, you go into David Jones and there's a department store and there's Boss and you can get Boss socks for 40 bucks, a lot different from the cotton-ons. And then you're wearing Xenia socks that are 150 bucks. They're still socks, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but this is the... This is the pathway that people slide into so easily. And I know that's a, a silly example, but it's one a lot of people will be able to relate to. It's lifestyle inflation. So you've got to just check that at the door. And you know, one of the things I say to people is, you know, drive, drive, the, drive the cheapest car your ego. It's going to allow you to get yeah. away with. And, and it's sage advice and it doesn't sound fun, but if it means you get an investment property portfolio with half a dozen properties pumping out you know, 15 grand a month in rent to you, then that's probably not a bad idea. Yeah. Again, it's the ego. Like, I think there's a, there's a place for a healthy amount of ego, right? It does look after you. It's created as a self-protection mechanism. But you got to realize, like, is your ego there to serve you or, or, or is it owning you? That's and are you right. a slave to your own ego? And you, and you might not even realize. So mm. very, again, very, very important to get that in, in, in check and, and have those uncomfortable mm. conversations and make the changes. But for someone that said, okay, Andrew, let's say I have – 5,000 to invest. Mm. Yep. What are some of the options for someone just getting started with, yeah. you know, investing the might of 5,000, 10,000? What are the options out there? There's a lot of different places, obviously, that you can go. Um, the easy default for most people would be into managed funds. Now, I'd probably caution against that for the simple reason, if you look at the statistics, there's a great research report on CanStar, you know, the consumer survey site there. So over a five-year period, 81% of Australian managed funds underperform. So unless you're feeling really lucky today and you've got the one in five that's going to do something for you, you're signing up for underperformance. Personally, I would say go down the exchange-traded fund space. It's cheaper. It's a lower price point of entry. The fees are more streamlined. You can make regular contributions as you save more to put in there and you're going to track what the market's done. Now, of course, if the market goes down, you're going to track that down, but you're still going to be better off than 80% of people that are invested in a managed fund. And you've also had to, in order to get there, learn a little bit too. And I think learning is growing ultimately, which sets you up with that platform for down the line. So to do that, you would need to set a broken account up. We can do that for you. It takes no time. And then you've got to hit the go button. And that's probably the bigger roadblock for people. But nonetheless, is that sort of important turnstile to pass through where you go, as I say, how committed are you to this decision? And if you click that go button and, and buy that exchange traded fund, that index tracker, You've made the decision, you've committed to it, and you're in the game, and you can be very proud of yourself. And this isn't just about money. It's about the growth you have as a human being. That My family have always been pretty bad with money. I've changed that story, and I'm committed to having a better future. Okay, that's all nice so far. It's all fluffy stuff. But, hell, I've saved the money, done the hard yards, I've had a budget. I've opened an account, I've put that money in, and I hit the go button. And that reinforcement, that validity of actually being the person that hits the go button for some people is like a breathing fizzy air that they've gone finally mm. I've taken control rather than being controlled that I'm doing something myself and I think sometimes even crazy as it might sound that's almost more important than making the money is the fact that they've shown the belief in themselves to step up and have a go and, and for me that's probably the easiest pathway if it's not the stock market maybe crypto is more people's flavor it wouldn't be mine but that's not to say it's not right for everybody um, then you know it's the same process you have to hit that go button because it's you that, that that's actually got off the blocks and made it happen so ETFs, exchange traded um, funds, again, it's a term I've been like heard a lot over the last few years in layman's terms for people that want to know, yeah, that's great, I can research. But what is, what are you trading when, when, gotcha. you, when you're getting involved in ETFs? So 
if you think about a supermarket and the stock market is like a supermarket, there are hundreds and hundreds of different products on the shelf. And you might say, look, I'm coming in specifically for a um, vegetarian or brown rice. That's what I'm after, one kilo bag of. So it's in aisle 16 and you go in and you buy your bag. The problem from an investor point of view, that's a really narrow focus to have, just brown rice, because maybe brown rice doesn't perform. Maybe apples are doing really well today and you just happen to buy totally the wrong product. And that's a big risk. So you've done all the work, you just bought the wrong asset. The way an exchange-traded fund can work is that rather than buy brown rice or an apple, you say, look, I'll just buy the supermarket. I'll have a bit of everything that's in there. That way I'm not at risk of apples not performing and rice doing well or yogurts coming in from the left side and didn't know anything about that. You've got a bit of exposure to everything, so it de-risks things for you. Much less work involved, much less research. It's just like, okay, I'll just buy the market, and if the market goes up, I make money. I don't have to worry about individual companies. Where they come into their four, Dylan, is that you can be more specific than that. So you can go, I don't want the whole supermarket. I just want the the fresh produce section. So you can invest in an exchange-traded fund that just is in, say, technology or, or home building or banking and finance or healthcare. So you can narrow it down a little bit more like that. So you can be more specific as to what you want without having to have all the pressure of picking the right share. You can trade inverse ETFs without making this too complex where they profit from a falling market. So, again, you've got that prospect of making money in a recession and, and a myriad of other things too. But just think of it like a supermarket and the diversification of having a bit of everything instead of one thing off of one shelf. So on that as well, that, that's that's a good point I wanted to ask you about like index funds and ETFs now. Is that still a good strategy in a market where there's a lot of uncertainty? Again, we've heard the word recession getting thrown around here in the US, all over the world, constantly over the last 12 months. Is it still a wise move to consider ETFs and, and index funds in a, in a market like this? Uh, absolutely. And it, it may just change, you just may change the type of ETF that you invest in. So, you know, if we're in a situation where interest rates are moving higher, you can invest in an ETF that profits from higher interest rates. The one in the US is TBT. And so the more interest rates have gone up, the more that's gone up in value. It's tripled in value over the last sort of two and a half years. Mm. So if there's higher interest rates causing a recession, well, you're hedging yourself in a way where you're profiting from that pain. I know it sounds a little callous that you're profiting from what is painful for a lot of people, but everyone gets access to this. It's a question of spending the time to learn what you could be doing, which why podcasts like this that educate people that there are things you can be doing out there are so, so important today. In terms of your research, apart from chart analysis and pattern recognition, in terms of looking into industries and areas that might see increases and declines and, and, and potential explosions and, and emerging technologies, mm. how do you do your research when it comes to these sorts of things? Where can people start to, yep. to level up in that aspect? Well, look, we've got a team of people in our, in our business that put it on a silver platter uh, every day. So we've got people way smarter than me in our <laughs> lab that, that are boffins that look at various things in there and we communicate that to our user group. And so they can piggyback on that through our app. So that's one way. What's the app? Uh, the app we use is called My Trading Advisor. So you can just three clicks and you can be taking your trade as it's recommended. I guess the beauty of that is not just saying buy this, but there's a, a video that goes alongside it where someone's explaining exactly. It's exactly what I did with my golfing buddy. Instead <laughs> yeah. of him coming to my house, we've just done it in a way where you're having the same conversation through an app. It's, it's pretty cool technology. So that's, that's a way. For me, and I mentioned earlier, I've always been interested in current affairs. So I find the news quite addictive, which is actually a bit of a, bit of a poison chalice given how negative most things are at the moment you've got to try and try and try and avoid that and I like looking for I guess social trends would be uh, uh, something that I enjoy looking for um, two examples of trades one would be India um, where the Indian economy is going through this massive shift right now where people are a bit fed up with China a lot of jobs are moving to India high level of education and literacy plus with what the Indian government's doing they're looking to bring 
you know, what is 300 million people out of poverty, you know, from $5 a day to $10 a day income, which is still poverty, but you've just doubled people's income across 300 million people. It makes a big difference. You know, India, for example, be the biggest cell phone market in two years' time in the world. Like, not for iPhones because they're too expensive, but for, for, for low price point. So there's an ETF, an exchange traded fund that just invests in India. It's a, a sitter, just put it in there, let it sit there for three or four years as the Indian economy continues to rumble on. And that's a question, I guess, of being able to see something in the news and then joining the dots to go, oh, that's interesting. How can I invest in that and how can I profit from it? And there's, there's an example of a trade. Um, so you do all your trades, like if you're using that app, you do all your trades from that app or do you need a separate account on an exchange? Uh, we, we set the account up that sits with it. So yeah. the app is just the communications tool and then the broking account. So you can place your own trades on, on, on the back of it as well. So that's that's pretty handy. So so that's a tool. Different one. This one's, this one's a bit of a quirky one. Um, when COVID hit, um, the shopping arcades in the US had to shut because non-essential service shopping and all that sort of stuff. And so there was a, an ETF that was set up that looked to profit from the demise of shopping malls, but also profit from the boost in e-com, which is right up your street. It's called EMTY is the ETF. It's listed in the US. And so the more retail in the shopping mall sense struggled, which has continued to do so, and the more that online has boomed, EMT just went through the roof. It's come back a little bit now. But nonetheless, there's an example of a really specific opportunity within there where you can go, okay, shopping malls are going to close down. Where's the opportunity in that? And you can profit from it. And that's what I've always loved about markets is that if you if you have a view on something, it could be wrong, but if you have a view on it, then you should seek to try and apply that view and make something from it. It's no point talking about it after going, I should have done that. Got to sort of step up and have a crack. Now, in, in terms of making money in a recession, a recession like you just messy, uh, mentioned, rather, mm. what are some of the ways that people can do that? Obviously, we've all seen the big short shorting certain industries and, and bubbles and whatnot. You just mentioned inverse ETFs. Yep. Explain some of the ways that people can, if we're in a recession, and it might not be to replace all the income or become a millionaire, but what's some of the ways that people can make additional money in a recession mm. using investing or trading? Sure. Well, we talked about the inverse ETF. So the more the stock market falls, for example, the the, the higher in value they go. So there's a, there's a direct way if the stock market starts to, to fall away. What we've just talked about thus far is is really the starting point in the journey. And for some people, you know, this is more complex. For other people, go, I've already started this, which is fantastic. I guess the next sort of rung in the ladder is that one of the strategies that we use is an income strategy around that where if you think about real estate, you own a property yeah. and you rent it out every week and you get a rent check. You can do exactly the same thing in the stock market. Instead of using real estate, you use shares or you use exchange-traded funds. So it gives you that ability as your wealth grows. This isn't a starting point strategy. This is maybe some line down the way. So let's say you've now got $20,000, $30,000 still trying to save for that house that's now working in the market and has done quite well. Well, how about if you just rented those shares or those ETFs out and you were able to pick up one and a half to 2.5% a month doing that, consistently ticking over, going back in, reinvesting it, accumulating more wealth. And again, that's going to really help you accelerate toward that. So... And that's a strategy that doesn't require the stock market to be going higher. Uh, it's just a really nice income play. What's that called, that strategy called? We call that strategy cash flow on demand. Um, it's one that we, we, we teach extensively. It's probably our flagship strategy because it ticks a lot of boxes. It gives you the ability for income, which many, many people are obviously looking for right now given, given the cost of living. And it's also, I would say, a lower risk strategy than owning shares. So it sort of ticks two boxes for people in that they get the idea of making more income, but they also get the ability to reduce their risk too. So what are the risks that would be involved with that strategy compared to owning the shares outright? So if you, if the share price 
pushed ahead significantly, you're capping your upside with it. Sure. But that's an if. If is a very small word that comes with really big consequences, as we all know. So what if prices don't go up? Well, you don't make any money as a shareholder. You're just holding an asset that's simply exposing you to the risk of the market without really generating any income. In the same way, if you held an investment property but didn't put a tenant in there, you're hoping the market's going to go up. But if it doesn't, what are you going to do? You're missing the cash flow aspect of it. And so, yes, you will mess up on some of the upside, but you're getting a guaranteed income. So it comes down to whether you value certainty more than uncertainty. Everyone's in a different camp as far as that yeah, goes, you know. With their appetite for risk. Now, in terms of the actual str- trading strategies, mm. when someone's in the stock market now, there's obviously day trading, there's more long-term mm. investing. What are the main, like in terms of like timeframes and trading mindsets that people get into? What's, what's some of the different ways people can trade and make money from the stock market? It's a terrific question because it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all type, type situation. And it's always, I think, an interesting conversation when someone comes in uh, to our organization, into our ecosystem, say, I want to day trade. And you say, why is that? And then sit quietly. That's what everyone talks about online. <laughs> so, you know, there's the cachet of being recognized as a day trader. From a human needs perspective, it ticks a really big box because there's immediate gratification. You can see a result on your endeavor for that day. Um, and those two things I think are important for people. It's stimulating. People are always looking for stimulation. The flip side of the coin, if you look at the stats, 98% of day traders lose money. 1% break even. So, you know, you've got to fancy your chances of being in the minority at 1% club before you even start on that. And further to that, you're also choosing to get into the boxing ring with people that do what I used to do for a living and it's all they do. They're not doing it as a distraction. It's all they do and they will nail you because it's what they do. And so when you start to have that kind of conversation with someone, say, what's the real reason for wanting to do this? Well, I want to get my money working harder. Then you can open the door. And and I think one of the, I guess, one of the skills or, values are really important to me I, 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 I really don't like the idea of telling people you should do this I think it's far more empowering for them to explain both sides of the coin and then let them make a decision themselves I see the same thing with my kids rather than don't do that is say hey look we can do this or do that what do you reckon is the best idea and when they choose the right idea that's great because they don't feel that they were sort of railroaded down a pathway they've bought into it and if someone buys into a decision they'll commit to it again we'll go back to that commitment stage versus don't day trade well why now the curiosity is there to see why should i put and and look we're human we want to push back when we come up against authority or someone tells us something so i think you know that that conversation is hugely important so to to your point as to what sort of time frames are you looking at you know i'm not a big believer in long long long-term investing we just buy and hold something for the long term other than probably property which which works very well in that space um Typically, the sort of window for, for, for my sort of trades are anywhere from about three to about eight weeks, typically. And, and that then doesn't become too time-consuming for people to have to follow the move in the market. And it also gives the trade time to do what it needs to do. So it's and a nice trade-off ca- there. So if you're cashing out on a trade, are you selling 100% of what you own or are you leaving some of it in the market? How do you kind of tend to make those decisions? Uh, it depends. Um, I, 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 there have been a few things recently where I've taken some Money off the table for sure, and I think that's that's a good, especially if you've got a market that looks really stretched and overvalued. And if you think about, again, it's not about maths; it's about pictures and images. If you think about an elastic band, and if you hold the other end of it and I, I hoist it up, at some point you know it's going to snap back and hit your man and it's going to hurt. So if a market's stretched so far beyond its average where it should be, it is going to snap back at some point. So it makes sense to take a little bit of tension 
out of the band, have that money in your bank account, put it into something else to diversify if that's what you want to do, and then leave the rest there, especially if it's just profit that's rolling. You've got no no real downside then, which is a lovely position to be in. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of some common misconceptions people have around trading, investing, the stock market, what are, what are some of the big ones that comes to mind? Because, again, a lot of people hear a lot of fancy terminology and they have an idea of what it really is to trade and invest. But, again, until you actually start and, or speak to an expert – just so many unknowns. I think you've got to be really clear on, again, what your outcome is. And yes, the outcome is to make money, but there are an awful lot of different ways of making money. You can speculate. And you mentioned earlier, it's a really good point. Almost the worst thing you can have in business or indeed in investing is the first little transaction you do turns out to be an absolute bell ringer because it gives you a massive oversense of, of overconfidence in a way where your confidence is so past where your competence and, and skill sets is. And if you try and scale that and it just happened to be goes wrong and it blows you up pretty badly that leaves a, that's a really hard one to recover from so i think working out what your goal and intention is and if it's speculation if it's directional trading or, or more aggressive stuff and it suits your temperament that's cool if it's about generating income from something like cash flow on demand fantastic if it's a more longer term uh, type of investment such as an etf great and it's about making sure that what you've got on the plate in front of you is what you want it's kind of like you go out for an Indian meal and if you've never had Indian food before and one of your friends orders for you and they choose to order the hottest vindaloo that's on your menu it's, it's not going to be a pleasant experience and it certainly won't be tomorrow either you know yeah. you know chili burns twice um the, the the reality is that some people might want something quite mild and other people want something really quite lively and most people probably sit somewhere in between so it's a question of working out what do you actually want? Don't say it's to make money because there are a lot of different ways of doing that. It's about making sure that that journey isn't stressful mm. and feels feels natural, feels right for you. And it takes a little while to work that out. You can try a lot of different things until you you kind of anchor in on, yeah, this is me. This feels good. I'm comfortable with it. There's no nasty surprises. It's not too time-consuming. Put a bit more money in. Now, when you, you just mentioned generally most of your trades will be between the three- to eight-week mark, is that including things like ETFs or are they more of a longer term? Or are they some, some of the ETFs like India, I've got a really long-term view on that, so I'm happy to let that one roll for, for a good period of time. Other things I might be a little bit more um, lively with might be something like oil or gold, which is much more volatile. So if we use our curry analogy, I'm feeling a bit peckish now, talking about the fits and national <laughs> dish. Um, if we're talking about curry, you know, like oil or gold is going to be far more spicy than an index tracker. So I don't want to be in it for a long time. I want to get in, get the job done, get out. Isn't, yeah. That is not a store of wealth. That's somewhere to go to reef out as much capital gain as you can and put that into a store of wealth somewhere else. So, you know, it might be that you take money out of the stock market from good runs and that goes into your next property, for example. So it's not a question of building speculative assets. You want to keep those at a minimum. You want your, your bigger pool to be in your more stable stuff, if that makes so sense. So you, you hear a lot of people saying these days you, sh you should hold uh, some of your cash in gold. So you feel like that's not the way that you approach looking at gold, silver, that sort of thing? There's been a disconnect as it has been, you know, over the last probably 18 months, two years between economic theory and what's happened in reality. And any book on trading and investing or, or how to invest in times of crisis, they go and buy gold. You have a look at the performance of gold. It's not that good. There are, like I said, the Nasdaq's up 41% this year. That's gold um, because the market's been driven by big tech particularly, uh, and, that, and that's why that index has done that. But there are times when, when, when that will play out. And I think, you know, if you look more broadly, it's a different conversation altogether. But, you know, if you look at, say, the future of the US dollar as, as a global reserve currency, given it's not gold-backed anymore, it looks a little bit shaky. 
hasn't been gold back since 1974. But you know, the reality is that gold does have a perceived level of stability. The problem is, if you buy gold, you're buying U.S. dollars because it's priced in U.S. dollars, and so you know there there is a vulnerability there um, to that kind of investing. Um, that said. Yeah, there are certain times of the year buying gold makes an awful lot of sense. Here's a, here's one for left field, seeing as we're talking about Indian food and 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 also investing in India. One of the things that happens every year in India, there's wedding season, uh, which is sort of end of November through to the end of February, ballpark, give or take. And there's a surge in demand for gold through that time frame because you've got an awful lot of people in India that don't have a bank account. There's hundreds of millions of people that don't have access to a bank account. And so a wedding dowry is no good in money. It's paid in gold. And where's the best place to store your gold? Not in your house when you're working outside in the paddock. It's on your person. So there's a huge demand for physical gold through there. And you can actually see that Naturally. in the gold price. And so once you know that, and now your listeners do, it's something to look out with. It's a very specialist skill to know that that's a pattern. Notice there's no numbers in this. It's just a pattern that happens regularly, not every year, but regularly enough that it can be quite a good strategy to play with. Now, in terms of strategies, we we spoke we spoke a little bit earlier about property investing, and, and obviously it's it's one of the most common ways that people think of I'm going to invest my money and hopefully grow my portfolio. Now, I want to dig into that a little bit more with you, but I I think it's difficult to talk about property investing at the moment without talking about the current you know market conditions we're in with the inflation and the, and the and the cost of living crisis that Australians and people over the world are experiencing just generally before we talk about property what's your thoughts on where the market is and the increase in inflation and the monetary policy that mm. you know doesn't seem like it's doing much good for Australian citizens the, the the difficulty with with inflation is that you know we just heard the reserve uh, bank governor uh, come out and say it's because people are going to the dentist and getting haircuts. It's got nothing to do with that. You've got a, a government that's spending money like a drunken sailor. The only person, and, and inflation, it's important to understand what inflation is. It's not CPI and it's not a cost of living rise. They're side effects of inflation. Inflation is actually an increase in the amount of money that's in circulation, chasing a finite amount of goods and services. I'm just putting my economics hat on from uni for a moment. And there's only one group that can increase money supply. It's the government. Nobody else has the ability, at least legally, to print money. They do. And so when government increases money supply, that's where inflation comes from. So it's not about consumption patterns from baby boomers who are getting blamed for a lot of stuff right now. It's just money supply coming from the government. So interest rates moving higher uh, are supposed to rein that in. But you know, we're in a situation in Australia or around the world really at the moment where the cost of living is a global phenomenon. It's not something that's going on uniquely in Australia. It's everywhere. Because most governments increase the money supply during COVID through subsidies and handouts, and and now the ramifications of that money's been spent, which is like throwing petrol on a fire. It's raging, and and you might go, look, can you just turn the heat down a bit? But when something's raging, it's it's pretty hard to pull back. So, increasing interest rates ordinarily are difficult for people to deal with economically, and and you know you've got to pay a higher mortgage if you're an investor. It's very different from being someone that owns their own home because if it's your home and it's your primary place of residence, you've got to pay the mortgage. If you're an investor, you just put the rent up. <laughs> so you're, you're almost impervious and immune to interest rates when it's an investment property. The second thing on there is that we've also got things like filling your car up with fuel. I filled my car up this morning. It's $175 to fill it with fuel, which, you know, and two years ago that would have been $85. Now, I'm not getting any more for the money I'm putting into the car. It's just taking me the same direction, same distance, but it's costing me double. And that's a burden that people think about filling your shopping cart up with food or heaven forbid you've got private health cover, which has jumped by, what, 40%. And 
everything is now manifestly more expensive. So it's not just mortgage rates that are making it very hard to get in the property market. We've kind of got this perfect storm now where everything simultaneously is expensive, which is really hurting people. That's a, that's a really bad situation and it's something that needs to change. And if you then hone that back to where the property market sits right now, we've got a rental crisis where there aren't enough rental properties for people, certainly not affordable. And yet we want to bring a one and a half million migrants into our country over the next four years. And the government's committed to that at this point in time. Where are they going to live, Dylan? That's a good question. And how do those say, well, we're going to build affordable houses? Well, we'll get onto that in a minute. About 700,000 of those migrants are going to be students. And most university campuses are in inner cities, which is exactly where this property crunch is right now. So I think for for people listening to this, and I hate to be a prophet of doom, it's be a, a beacon of optimism, but it's buggered. And with that policy of wanting more people coming in, it's going to make it a, a, an even more difficult situation for everyday Australians. And, 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 and this is a government-driven policy for sure. You could say, okay, well, we'll just hold off on immigration for a little while. And then we say, well, but we've got a skill shortage. Well, we don't. We've got more people that are claiming benefit than before COVID. So maybe we need our workforce to be working before we open the door to create a bigger problem in our property market. And again, I put my economics hat on when I say that. There's no political agenda in there. It's just the reality of supply and demand. Now, don't worry. We're from the government. We're here to help. We've got our housing Famous affordability. Oh, I think it was Ronald Reagan, wasn't it, that said that if you ever hear those words, run for the hills, <laughs> which is probably pretty good advice. Um, yeah, we're from the government. We're here to help. We've got the Housing Australia Affordability Fund, the new cheap affordable housing for everybody. So there's $10 billion that's going into that. So here's another $10 billion going into the economy, which is already overcooked, and money supply is now increased by another $10 billion, more inflation. Um, and we intend to make about $500 million a year from that to then fund building houses. Now, your listeners are savvy. That's why they're listening to your show, and they can do the maths on this. If you're making 5% or 500 million a year out of 10 billion, you think, well, that's all going to go into building houses. No, you've got to pay the debt as well. Cost of servicing a government bond right now is about 5%. So whatever you make is going to go in terms of servicing debt. So there's actually no money to build anything with. Now, even if you did, let's just park to the side. Don't worry about don't worry about the interest. There's no interest. It's an interest-free loan. I'd love to see one of those. I'm sure everyone would. Um, that 500 million gives you the ability to build what is it, the government have quoted, I think, 82,000 to build a house, an affordable house. So it gives you the ability to build 30,000 houses a year. You need probably 800,000 for the migrants that are coming, but we're going to build 30,000 a year and they're going to cost 82 grand. I'd love to see a house built for 82 grand. It costs about 450 grand to build a house, by the way. They're going to rebuild a wall at my place and it's fucking almost 100 grand. Yeah. So you can see the fallacy of those numbers. Yet yeah, so many people are, oh, the government, they're going to help. They're going to, it's, it's inflationary. It's not going to fix the problem. It's not going to do any money to build houses when they've serviced a debt. You, me, and every other taxpayer in the country are going to be paying it off for the next 30 years. Also, we can have more university students coming into the country. And I'm a migrant. I'm a first-generation Australian. I'm very proud of that. And we do need migration, but it needs to be done in a very careful way. So if the universities need accommodation for seven, 800,000 students, given the fact they're going to be one of the ones that are making the dough from the tuition fees, how about they get a subsidy or a tax concession on building accommodation on campus for their students? That way they're paying for the service they need instead of you and I and everybody else listening to this paying for it. And in terms of interest rates, if they didn't increase interest rates again, what was it, two weeks ago, Melbourne Cup yeah. Day, whenever that was, mm -hmm. 
Again, they try and paint it like the picture. They have no choice but to increase interest rates. In your opinion, and obviously it's your opinion, but is it necessary to continue raising it or will, could there be negative effects? What's your thoughts on the, the interest rate specifically? We, we've got to a point where affordability for loans, it, it's at a real nexus now. So I think 34% of people's salary goes on accommodation now just as, a, as an approximate stat, which is brutal. Um, the, the reality is there are more tools at your disposal if you if you're a little bit more visionary in, in what you want to do, so again, you've got to look at what the problem is in the marketplace, and that's the fact that investors, particularly not first home buyers, because they're at the lowest level that we've seen since the GFC. It's not about new housing starts because housing approvals are also at the lowest level since um, since the GFC. Significant statistic. Investors have done very well from this, and that's not because they're bad people. They, they happen to have cash because they've budgeted, saved, had a game plan, and they've moved along, done all the things that most people aspire to want to do, and they've provided homes for people who can't afford to buy one. But if you wanted to soften that market, which has definitely driven prices higher, change the loan-to-value ratio. So if you're a property investor, it's not a primary place of residence, instead of it being a 20% deposit, make it 50%. Now you can't afford as many which means you're not taking supply out of the market and you're making it available to first-time buyers, families that want to move, and so on. That doesn't affect the whole market. It doesn't affoct mum and dad that are struggling under the mortgage. It doesn't affect the first-time buyer that wants to get started because interest rates are still low. But they're being able to get a fair go to get their first start by making it harder for people to buy 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 properties. They can still invest, but it's just on a lower level, which takes that heat out without collapsing the market and it gives these guys a fair go. That's common sense to me, but... Common sense isn't so common, maybe. So realistically, what do you envision the property prices for inner city suburbs to do over the next few years? Do you think it's going to soften? Do you think it's going to continue to skyrocket? Because, again, even if they do build a lot of properties, how, how much land is there available in inner city city mm. in, of Sydney? Not much. No. You've got, you've got a situation, and I guess like any forecast, you can go one of two ways, and I, I hate those sort of uh, those sort of fork-in-the-road forecasts. You know, have, have an opinion and, and, and stand behind it. You might be wrong, but at least you, at least you've got an opinion. If we have migration on the scale that's talked of, I think we're going to see a continued strong property market for the wrong reasons. Uh, in the investor space where rents go higher and just having a strong property market isn't necessarily a good thing if it's been driven by the wrong factors because that will continue to price out first home buyers and, 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 and everyday Australians. That's not a good thing. So if we have that level of migration, it's, it's going to provide a really big support for our property market. If we don't have that, I think we might just see a little bit of heat come out of this market just just a little bit, especially if we do move into a recession. You know, we've got properties that are, I mean, you know, you can't, depending on which city you're in, prices are, are just astronomical. I live in Byron Bay. Our mate's just sold his place for $37 million, which is just an insane price. And and that's not unusual here in Sydney. Yeah, to the eastern suburbs in particular, it, it, it's the norm. It's the baseline. And, 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 What's the flow behind that? Where, where's the next flow? So you can develop, you can build up instead of out, which uses the land. But unfortunately, I think you build tomorrow's slums today when you do that, where you build these communities that are in extremely dense housing, which it may well support an influx of migrants short term. But as and when those migrants then leave, if they're students and they don't stay on, you end up with a ghetto town, which is which is not good either. It's a, it's a really difficult one. So if we have migration on scale that we've talked of, you know, one and a half million people, I think we'll see continue strong property market but not in a healthy way and if that migration doesn't happen I think we might just see a little bit of a pullback take some heat out of it which is a, as a reset I think is probably quite healthy there's been there's been a lot of talk that I've seen over the last few years and and, and some protests against this 
maybe you know more than me. Are you aware of like, is it true again? I never know if these things are rumours or, or, or what, but like that they're moving a lot of government housing, kick, like moving them out to the fringes of Sydney again so they can demolish those old buildings closer to the city. So Waterloo, Redfern, there's a lot around there. There's one right near the, the Harbour Bridge. Is that something that you think is going to become more common, like reclaiming the government housing, de demolishing, demoing that, rebuilding, selling off the land, making money there and pushing everyone further and further out? I, I, I think there's a level of reality to that statement for sure in that – and is it a bad thing? Two different conversations, I suppose. I think it probably will happen mm -hmm. uh, because if you're a local government and you're saddled with you know, having to update your infrastructure, the Parramatta tram, for example, or whatever it might be, it's expensive. You need dough coming in the door and you might have a prime site there that you go, look, we can flick that, move the people that are there out a little bit further, who cares, uh, which would be the attitude with that kind of decision. And on the surface, that's not necessarily a bad thing, provided it's done in the right way. But yeah. when there's a when there's a sweetheart deal with the developer that buys the land for a steal, and suddenly after they've bought it, it gets re pre approved for a different level of density and all the rest of it, the government don't get their fair share from that. And you know the people that were living there are disadvantaged; they've got to move further away. There's no winner in that other than the developer and uh, and the person that's helped them. And that certainly has happened. I'm not going to name names, but it certainly happened in Sydney. Uh, Parramatta area, for example, um, over recent years where those sort of decisions have been made. And that's not fair and it's not right um, and it needs to be needs to be adjusted. Moving people out of the CBD, look, Dylan, I think COVID probably taught us, well, I think it's taught us a few things. There are certainly a lot of lessons to take out of it. And the demographics that we used to have was kind of like a fried egg. You've got the yoke in the middle, that's where everyone works, and then you've got these concentric circles moving further out based on budget and, 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 and lifestyle, et cetera, as to where people live and, and also transport to get back into that. But since, since the pandemic, we've kind of got a model now that's not a fried egg, it's a scrambled egg where you can work from virtually anywhere and that requirement to be in the CBD is much less strong. And also the type of accommodation, if you're going to work from home, that you're looking for is probably going to shift from being a, a two-bedroom here to tear in the town or in the city close to work to something that's got a garden and is more spacious and maybe a separate place where you can actually work from an office for example which has to happen in the suburbs so i think that push out demographically is very likely to continue happening just on our, on, on 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 the changes of our work practices the sad thing for people is that yeah you know, work isn't just about work you know i go back to the start of my career, you know, get out and have a few drinks with the guys and you meet some people, maybe meet a new girlfriend, whatever might be going on. And that, that, that structure of, 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 of fun and being around people is gradually being taken away. You don't get that on a Zoom call, do you? Not at all. And then again, it's probably, it's, it's not probably, it's definitely related and definitely exacerbated the mental health crisis, the loneliness epidemic as well. And you see people like Elon saying, we're bringing everyone back into the office. If you don't like yep. it, see you later. It's, it, it's, as human beings, even if we're antisocial human beings, we crave company. You know, we don't want to be on our own. We're not designed for that. We're hardwired to be a pack animal in, in, in organised structures of of society. And, and I think that's a really sad thing. And I, I really do think it's it's especially it's especially a negative for younger folk because so much of your transition in life is, 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 is not just your time at work but it's the friends that you make at work and the relationships around that. And... And the experiences that, that go alongside that and, and there's a whole generation of people I think are being robbed of it and mental health on the back of that I think is a very valid concern. And I, I don't know if it's a statistic that people are looking at that hard. It's not a very convenient truth. Well, it definitely wasn't considered as much as it should have been when they were making decisions over the past 
three years or so. Mm. Um, but again, not, not much we can do about that anymore. Hopefully lessons learned for the future. I doubt if they will be or if they even care. But that's again a conversation for another day. Now, while we're on the property conversation, now in terms of when you're looking at property as an investment strategy, are you more residential or commercial focused or a little bit of both? Sometimes people are extremely mm. one-sided. Sometimes people have a balanced approach. Where do you sit on kind of that scale? I think it's 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 actually shifted for me. I've, I've done primarily residential property and I've done stuff from renovation to development and, and everything in between. Um, and that's been a tried and tested model. One thing I don't do is off the plan. I don't think it's a particularly um, – it doesn't suit my needs and I think – you lose a lot of control of your decision making in there because you're signing up for something in two, three years down the line. A lot can happen. You know, if the market runs hard and the developer decides they can sell it for more, they'll tear your contract up and, and, and you're out. So developers can tear up the contract. Depending on the clause in there, but there'll be almost certainly uh, a clause to that effect. And likewise, if the market drops away, you're on the hook for it and, and you're not going anywhere. You've got to pay and you, the bank valuation won't stack up, which screws your finance up. So, so there's, there, there are way too many variables. I'm a, I'm a simple person. I don't like stress in my life. I just want something that's meat and potatoes. So that works for me. Um, and, 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 yeah, I've had experience in development and that's been, that's been very good and it's probably something I'll, I'll, I'll return to. I haven't been doing that for a little while, but it's probably something I'll get back to. At the moment I'm looking at commercial actually for a few reasons. I've had some structural changes in, in, in what I do and, and so it makes sense for me to look at commercial at this point in time. Um, plus, I think in, in many respects, residential is, is probably overvalued. Um, and so you're buying something that, you know, if you take a 30, 40 year view, you're going to be fine because timing's not an issue when you've got that time frame. And very sadly, as I've got more experienced and wiser, I've also gotten older as well. And uh, I don't like mentioning that, but I have. And, uh, and, and so for me, the time horizon, and it's actually really interesting because that's the first time I've said that to anybody. And, and, and I think that reflects the nature of this conversation. It's a great chat we're having here. And I, and I, and I just, just, it just felt that, shit, I'm getting older here. So the timeline, 30, 40 years time is no good for me. Unless I'm investing in an old people's home or something <laughs> maybe. So, you know, so I don't have the luxury of be, being able to sit back and just let the, thing, let the thing go. I've got to look at stuff that's going to give me a snap over the next five, ten years. Now, for some of your audience, it might be a little bit younger that time window is huge. So it becomes far less relevant. So again, the lenses that we look through changes over time. Your strategy has to evolve. So for me right now, commercial is definitely where I'm at. Uh, there's some significant tax it's within my super. So um, it's, it's great from a tax perspective as well. Um, and I may well return to the residential market if things look a little bit shaky and we get a pullback there. So for the people that are earning a, a decent amount of money and have the ability to invest in commercial, what are some of the benefits of, of commercial compared gotcha. to residential? Okay. Look, you're probably more in tune with the economy, which is, can be good, can be bad. You know, if we go to a recession, you can feel it. you can have a longer vacancy rate. But I think that stability of yield is is really important. And the valuation on that property is driven entirely from yield. So if you've got good tenants, good occupancy, booming economy, you know, and, and, and you're able to jack the rent up, it's not a 5% increase in rent. It's a 5% increase in rent times the multiplier, which is another 5 because it's on 20% LVR and away you go. So you, the, the value of the property can really stack out and move reasonably dynamically when you get decent rent moves, which is you know, the nuts and bolts of commercial investing. The, the, the flip side, of course, is that um, the vacancy rates can be higher. Yeah. While we're on property as well now, this doesn't have to be commercial. can be any, any property, uh, residential, commercial. Now, what are some of the biggest, most common mistakes that you see people make when it comes to property investing? Is there anything that comes to mind? How long have we got? <laughs> 
Uh, I've made a few of them. I'd take my shirt off and show you the scars. And, and, and it's good to make those mistakes. It's, it, and again, you, know, you talk about the psychology of investing earlier on. We hold ourselves to such high standards that we're terrified of making mistakes. And if you're frightened of making a mistake, you'll never make a decision in case you're wrong. And, and that's a tragedy because you have to make a lot of decisions to learn how to make good ones. And so you can't, can't be fearful of that. So mistakes aren't a bad thing as long as they don't put you, put you under. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a learning curve. Um, I think principally when people buy investment properties, they look through a lens that's, oh, I'd like to live here. It's got nothing to do with that. It, it's about numbers. And this is about numbers now rather than patterns. It's what do the numbers look like? How do they stack up? principally and does the property then service itself so you've got the fundamental conversation of negative versus positive gearing i've always been a fan of positive geared properties purely and simply because they pay for themselves uh, negative geared property uh, i see sold very very heavily in that you've got a tax problem or get you some negatively geared property paying tax is the ultimate benchmark that you're winning the game of money get yourself structured perfectly so you can get it to a level that's as minimal as it can be and then your goal should be to get that number to be as big as possible because then you really are kicking goals. Yet so many people look through the scarcity side, oh, I can get my tax back. You can, but is your game about lowering your tax or is it about building wealth? Because they're not the same thing. Uh, and that's, again, a hard, hard conversation to have with people. What sort of dwellings or areas generally tend to have a, a higher yield where, the, where it can be positively geared or is that it's too... too Re regional certainly, um, you yeah, know, when there's, a, when there's a kicker somewhere, so for example, you know, let's say there's an, uh, an aluminium smelter being built uh, in, in the backyard or a steelworks, don't really see that in Australia, but those sorts of things that can give big employment and then there's a surge in demand for that area, certainly, and especially if those employees are likely to be temporary. Yeah, and we saw this, if you, if you sort of go to places like Surat and Toowoomba, um, where when they put in the coal seam pipeline in there, there was this huge influx of workers, so property prices and rents went through the roof, and that's great. You get sucked into that. You go, oh, fantastic! Look at this great positive yield. I can't believe I'm making eleven percent on this property. It's fantastic. And then when the workers go, you can't rent the place out. So you've got to be very aware of what the driver is. Is it an organic, natural growth, or whether it's chasing the wind and just okay? That's that's the story that's today, and it's working. Yeah. Yeah. Because your window for a property, as I say, is going to be a much much longer term window and so there's got to be a sustainability behind it it's not a hit and run like a stock i got in for three days and got out that doesn't happen with property. yeah yeah no 100 now i want to ask you a couple last questions before we before we wrap this up now one of them is again it's a, a common term that gets thrown around and, and i as i was doing my research you even have a, a pretty recent um youtube podcast um on this discussing it now it's timing the market versus time in the market explain to me your thoughts on that and what is a better strategy for people to, to look at in terms of investing? It comes down to one simple thing, and that's skill set. And, uh, and again, this can be a, a, something of a crushing blow to your ego to say, look, I'm, I'm pretty crap at picking investments. And if that's you, then time in the market is going to work for you. You're going to give your investment time to do its thing. Uh, and over a period of time, whether that be property, whether it be in the stock market, the skill requirement is not too high. So if you're someone that's got, let's call it the shit finger, whatever you turn, whatever you touch turns to, to, to shit, time in the market's going to help you very clearly. If you've got a more evolved skill set, and by the way, that's a huge recognition if you know that in yourself, that, that's an enormous breakthrough from your decision making. If you've got a particular, a particular skill set, some nafs in a, in a certain discipline, well, that can help you time the market in a different way. And that obviously is, is very prevalent in the stock market where it's all about timing the market for... Uh, for people that want to be active investors. 
and just to manage people's enthusiasm in that space, again, remember 80% or 81% of managed funds underperform the market where they're trying to time the market but can't, and these are supposed to be the best brains in the industry at doing this. Interesting statistic to really digest. So timing the market is not easy. You have to have an edge or as I've spoken to earlier, that strategy of cash flow on demand where it doesn't really matter what the market does, you're just aiming to generate income on a regular and consistent basis, takes all of that pressure away from you. You've then just got an asset that just sits there and reefs out cash flow just like an investment property. So it is horses for courses. For people that want to get started, I think the best advice I'd give anyone is to find the lowest friction way of getting up and running. And if you can do something that's easy, doesn't involve a lot of time, doesn't involve a lot of skill, that you can start today, I would say from a personal development and wealth creation perspective, that is the best place to be rather than something that requires you to jump through hoops and you've got all this complicated stuff, you've got to do a course and you've got to learn this and you've got 12 months of doing some practice stuff before you've lost that year. So make it simple, take the friction out, at least just get started in an index tracker literally yesterday if you can. And then over time as those skills evolve, then just look at finessing it. But get started now. Now, let me ask you this. I want you to explain the difference between something for me. Um, exp- could you explain the difference? <laughs> I'm nervous now. <laughs> uh, so, again, this is something that gets thrown around a lot as well, but could you explain for the people listening the difference between being rich and being wealthy? And then part two to that question, how you can go from being rich to being wealthy. Mm. So the difference between rich and wealthy, I guess it's a psychological feeling in yourself. And people... If you, if, if you have an idea of a quality of life that you want, you say, well, if I, if I earn 500 grand a year, I'd be rich and I'd better do what I want. The chances are if you're pulling down, assuming it's not your own business, say you're an employee somewhere uh, and you're pulling down half a bar, what, how many hours a week do you reckon you're going to be doing? Long, long hours. Yeah. How much time are you going to spend with your family? Not a lot. How much time are you going to spend in the gym on your health and vitality? Well... Not as much as you'd love to be, I'm sure. Maybe, maybe if you do, you can prioritise that, then there goes the family time. So when you do eventually get some family time and you're sitting on your sun lounger at a beach club on the Amalfi Coast, how many times your phone's going to ring? A lot. Right. So that's the trade-off because you're going after the number and that is so far away from wealth, it's not true. Yeah, that's the definition that most people would have. They just see that baseline number. The reality, I think, of wealth is having the time and space to live a lifestyle that suits you that isn't necessarily driven by dollars. Now, that becomes quite hard because you think, well, you know, I have an Italian sports car and a house here and I do it and I do threads and all the rest of it, but do you really? And if you can sort of find a level within yourself where you've identified the things that are most important to you, and it might be health and vitality, which should be for, for most people because ultimately you don't want to be the richest person in the cemetery. You want to have a great, healthy, long-term life where you can do what you want to do and, and enjoy doing it. Um, it might be that you, the trade-off is that I get to go to the gym for an hour every day or, or swim in the ocean every morning or whatever it might be, but in order to do that, I'm sacrificing 50 grand a year. Is it worth the trade-off? That's a personal question. It's hard for everyone to answer, but chasing the dollar on its own is not right. What you've got to chase, and again, I guess it comes back to it's a brilliant sort of closing series of questions. You're making me work here. I'm beating up. <laughs> the, the, the reality is... You've got to build a process that gets that money then working for you instead of you working for it. If you're rich, chances are you're working for money. If you're wealthy, money is working for you because it's giving you a level of income. It may not be as high, maybe higher, 
but it's also affording you the time to enjoy it and make the lifestyle choices that you want to. And I think that's a far better definition of wealth than just a just the number that goes on your tax Massive. return. And I guess that that feeds into the ego situation we had as well. Like if you're just driven by the number in your bank account and how much you earn to, to, to scratch some egotistical itch that you have, whether it be conscious or subconscious, then to me, I don't care how much money I have if I don't have time to enjoy it. Yep. I'd much rather earn an amount and structure my life in a way where I get to enjoy the fruits of my labor. And like you said, have your money working for you now. I want to. Sorry to ask you this. Yeah. How many years into driving your business was it? Did it take before you realized that? Um, three. Three. Yeah. Because like it's it, it take, but again, it's a privileged position. You need to have a bit of money to realize that. Yep. And that's why I did like fuck. I've wanted to have a podcast for so long. I wanted to do yep. all these different things, but I became a slave to my business. Mm-hmm. Staring at a screen in e-commerce. I'm an outgoing person. I'm a people person, right? I was working in sales before I did this, mm-hmm. so I would be on calls and face-to-face meetings all the time. It got to the point where for two years straight, I was staring at my screen for twelve hours a day, and then then what? Mm-hmm. There was, there was that's interesting. So when you, when you hit that, so three years in, you got to hang on a second. Here's the ladder we talked about earlier. And it's leaning against the wall. Yeah, maybe it's not quite in the right place. I can move it along. I can stay in econ, but I've got to do this in a different way. I've got to, from a rich perspective, maybe take some of the income I was earning and drop that down to employ people to do that stuff for me to buy my time. And that is where scale comes from. And you have to go through that. It's no different to investing. You got to have a plan, and then you got to get it consistent that you've driven, and then you can scale it. If I was just driven by money and how much money I wanted to make my my primary business Happy Skin Co make like. I could have done that. We could have made way more money. I could have made way more profit, could have scaled more, but I would have been depressed. I wouldn't have even enjoyed it. And for me, it's like I've already hit that level of financial freedom that I wanted. And now it was an ego check for me to make and pivot. Okay, I'm going to make decisions. Obviously, I want all my businesses to make as much money as possible, obviously, but not at the sacrifice of my personal happiness and joy. I'm much more built like, again, the term gets thrown around a like lifestyle business. What is a lifestyle business? It's very... You know, it's different for every person. Everyone had a different answer. But for me, when I started making decisions around happiness and fulfillment, everything made sense for me. I felt better. But I still believe if you can make those decisions around fulfillment and happiness, maybe I'm leaving money on the table this year, next year. But long term, I feel like I'm going to be in a much better place anyway because I'm not going to burn out. I'm going to work on things I'm really passionate about. And that will compound. It becomes the long game. It becomes the long game. Yep. Right, and I think there's a time and place for the short game, particularly if you're early on and you want to change your life and you know get to a certain stage. But then a lot of people get into that and they become slaves to the this business, this model they've created. Mm. It's up to you to then decide: Do you want to keep going down this path, or do you want to do things a little bit differently? Now, before we send you out of here, you, you've got the book we were discussing a little bit earlier, the Wealth Playbook. Give us a little bit of a high level what this is teaching people. I know you mentioned when we were chatting. Um, before it is a lot of it targeted at millennials and helping helping them make better financial decisions and build their wealth. But how would you explain what what the kind of the gist of the book is? I guess it's a it's a step by step process. And the hardest thing for anybody starting a journey is knowing and the pressure we put on ourselves. What are the steps I need to take now? What are the immediate ABCs that are going to make a material difference to me? And we talked to some of them: budgeting, obviously, um, getting your savings working, and then more importantly, getting that money invested as as quickly as possible. But we also go through the practical stuff. That's that's the high level. Anyone's going to tell you that in any webinar about making money. But what's the reality behind it? Well, how about if, you, if you're struggling income-wise, getting a side hustle up and running? And, and again, there's such a plethora of things that you could be doing from you know, being a, a, a copywriter, somebody that creates graphics for websites if you're in the e-com space, you know, 
helping with event planning. Only fans. I mean, the, don't take your clothes off now. But this you know, goes on. The, the, the myriad of opportunities have never been broader. And so that ability to get a side hustle happening. And this came about. I was I was chatting with a young guy um, at an event I was speaking at in. He's um, up in Asia. Uh, he's in Singapore, and. And, I, and he's saying, like, I would love to, I just don't have the cash flow at the moment. So work him. He's like, what's your side hustle? He's like, what's my what? He's like, what's your side hustle? You have to have a side hustle. And if it's something that you enjoy doing, and that's how most people end up going into business anyway because they've got the little bit on the side that I'll oh, give that a go, I kind of enjoy it. Oh, this is working. And then it starts to grow and the other thing gets kicked, become wealthy. Uh, and so things like that, um, clear goal setting. Then we move into understanding um, about the different things in the investment universe and where they should sit within your journey. Right the way through to structuring and tax, which, again, aren't exciting things. And when you're young, you go, oh, don't worry about structure and tax. It's just like suck it up and get on with it. Yet, you know, if you if you had the chance to start your journey again and you had the advice of saying, okay, particularly with something like property, get your structuring right first because everything else will flow from that. It gets your tax down, it makes your assets safe, and long-term it's going to help you get from A to B. My parents didn't know about that. They just worked their tail off, both of them, their whole life to work hard, get the mortgage paid down, have a couple of holidays, save a bit of cash, and drift into retirement. Mm -hmm. Yet if they'd got themselves structured, and this sort of comes down to the teachings of Kiyosaki in particular, where what you're doing is paying everything you want to pay out of gross income, not after tax income, the world is massively different because heaven knows the government's not doing a great job of spending our tax right now. So we go through tax and structuring and then we take it into a literally a, a decade by decade game plan. So if you're at this stage, stage one, these are the things you need to do. Stage two, these are the things you should be doing. Stage three, here are the things that you should be doing so you can get yourself to that destination. And I think, Dylan, when it comes to money, the little things really, really matter and, 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 again, I'm in an industry that's incredibly jargon-heavy, and I really hope I haven't loaded this conversation up with jargon. I think you've done pretty well to make it simple enough for <laughs> me to understand. That, 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 that's a goal. We, we want to open the door for people. Yet most people are so scared to ask questions of their financial planner or advisor or accountant because they feel silly. And I think the industry, in a way, is almost, without sounding too cynical, is almost constructed that way. So you go, look, this is too hard. Here's my money. Go manage it. And don't worry, they'll charge you a small fortune for doing that. And, and that's what that industry is predicated on. Now, have a think about this. If you're paying just 1% a year difference in your fees, over the course of your lifetime, at the age you're at right now, that's equivalent of 10 years' retirement income in fees that you didn't have to pay. Wow. So teaching people how to go, look, I can dial in to help where I need it, but I've got a playbook here that's going to give me a total game plan. So I'm the person in control and making the decisions, but I've got people helping me with the specific stuff that I need help with you become master of your own destiny. And I think from a financial perspective, it adds up. From a personal growth perspective and an empowerment perspective, you leave people in a position where they feel that they've got control of their life instead of being controlled by other factors, that they've got a future that they've set for themselves and they've defined and they've got a game plan to get there. And that's in essence what that book's about. And for people, again, one of the best things about me having this podcast, obviously get to meet incredible people, but even just in doing the research, I learn a lot now. Australian Investment Education, you've got, you know, a massive series as well linked to the podcast on YouTube. Mm. But what what is that, if for someone that's ready to start investing now, maybe wants a little bit more guidance and support, where's the best place that they can get in touch, find out more about that? Yeah. Either hit us up on our socials, uh, which, as you say, is Australian Investment Education or our website. Register for some information. We've got a, a whole bunch of free stuff we can send you. We've got some freemium stuff. And then we've got, if our circles overlap and it's it's a fit for you and us, then we've got our pathway that we can help take you on. So the other resources for all budgets, all experience levels, and I guess 
all levels of open-mindedness from I want to do this myself or I want you to do it for me. So we can cater for pretty much anybody in there. We'll put all your links in here, Joe. We'll make sure all the links are in there. And the book, when did you say the book was releasing as well? The official release date is February the 24th, I believe. Yeah. Uh, that's the official release date. But we've got a pre-order uh, page uh, which you'll get at wealthplaybook.com.au and you can pre-order your copy and that'll be released I think from the publishers. New journey for me, never written a book before so really? I'm told this Sorry. is how it works, there's an audio book as well so if you prefer to listen to it on Audible or Spotify or whatever uh, that'll be available for you as well and and I guess the key thing in wanting to do it now, we, we've built an ecosystem in the world of trading which has been very successful, we've helped tens of thousands of people there. We want to do the same thing in, in financial planning and wealth guidance and no book on its own is going to do that because things change over time. So what we've put together to, to sit behind the book is a free online learning portal. So you can read about it in the book and go, that's cool, I need a bit more help with that. You can go and do some of the free lessons in there and, and, and it's really designed to help bolster your knowledge so that I guess the driver for me dealing with it more than anything was there's nothing worse if you sit across a table and someone says, you need this, and you go, but why? And you don't know why and you're just going to buy it because you trust them. Financial planners typically are salespeople. They sell product, policies, insurance, whatever it might be. Whereas if you understand that maybe you're underinsured, something really simple. You've just bought a house, it's got a mortgage on it, and you've got two kids. If you die, there's a mortgage and there are two kids to support. And you've got 200000 in life insurance. It's not enough. That's called being underinsured. So we'll give you the training so you know roughly what level of insurance you want to leave your estate, property, family, whatever, safe. Equally, at the other end of the scale, if you've got someone that's kids are out the door, no mortgage, no debt, and they've still got a $5 million life policy from when they had you know, three or four mortgages or the kids were there, they're paying insurance that they don't even need. And that's a huge saving. You bring it back in. But if you, if you understand just that simple slither, the value-add peace of mind savings, they're massive. So they're all in the online portal to go alongside the book. So there's plenty of hand-holding there as well. You're not going to be left on your own. Yeah, and I guess, I guess as well, like for, for people listening, money can be an uncomfortable topic for some people. They don't want to think about it too much because it causes them stress, because of whatever their experience, their money stories they learn as well. But like the information and the knowledge and taking control is power. I've been guilty at times as well, which I think is part of why I probably haven't, you know, spent a lot of time personally yet in investing. Was I'm, I'm like, ugh, it's too complicated. I'm just going to make so much money. It doesn't matter. Mm. But that's so stupid because I'm making so much, leaving so much, potentially leaving so much money on the table. And like you said, it's about setting up the system so then your money can work for you. So um, I'm excited. I'll be getting a copy of the book for sure. Andrew Baxter, thank you so much for giving us your time. I hope everyone listening learns a lot. I know I did. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be keeping track of everything you do from here on out. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.